Welcome to Third Man Walking. Today my guest is Ilias Marotti, who recently enjoyed a significant score at a World Poker Tour tournament in Florida. Only a couple years before that, he was in one of the darkest places you can possibly be. And he has an incredible story to tell. It's a story that stretched my capabilities as an interviewer, maybe. And I struggled with it a lot about what sorts of questions to ask, about when to ask follow-up questions and what sorts of follow-up questions to ask, and what to include and what not to include in the edit of the interview. I learned the details of Marathi's situation from a series of articles. One of them uh, was in the Miami Herald. Another was a really good one on the World Poker Tours website. So I'll put a variety of links in the show notes if you want to learn more about him. So enjoy my interview with Ilias Marathi. Ilias Marathi, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, tournament poker is the highs can be very high and the lows can be very low, but I've never heard of another poker player who's had such great distance between the highs and lows as you've had in your life. Yes. Yes. That's 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 fact. That's really true. Poker turn especially tournaments does have their ups and downs. But I have I have to be call myself one of the fortunate got blessed. Yeah, so we'll get to that. Um, but but first of all, maybe we can we can talk about your background a little bit. So your your family, you and your family were refugees from Afghanistan, and you got to the U.S. just after nine eleven, right? Yes, I was born in Afghanistan, and uh, because of the war and stuff, I lost my father, my grandparents, and we moved to Pakistan. We was over there. Uh, refugee for a few years and after that we applied for a refugee to come to United States and we got accepted and we came to United States in September 28 2001 just right shy of September wow. 11 you know wow that's yeah. that's crazy that must have been really hard given mm-hmm. the sentiment in the US at the time oh yeah if it, it was it was the most difficult time ever in my life, especially when you come to the United States and from third world country that you don't know anything, the culture, the language. I mean, you don't know nothing on top of that being born in Afghanistan. So it's, it's more problems to people look at you that way than my problem. Cause my problem was only when I came to the United States was to learn the language and learn the culture and get blamed in with people, you know? But the problem that my country, the country that I was born with had versus towards the United States, that problem was above the problem that I was facing every day, like learning the language or stuff like that. People was looking at me as a terrorist. They wasn't looking at me like I was a young child came to the United States trying trying to change my life, trying to learn the culture, trying to become somewhere to be safe you know but they wasn't looking at that they were just looking at me like oh he he was born in afghanistan he's a terrorist and we want to take advantage towards him there whatever's going on whatever's going on in his life you know what i mean 
Yeah, and so you, you were, what, 12 game. or 13 years old at that point, right? And you're, that's just like yes, an age yes. where you're trying to figure out who you are anyway, and, and you have to compound yes, that. Yes, yes. So a few years later, you hadn't yet become a U.S. citizen, and mm-hmm. you sell some marijuana to a guy who turns out to be a police informant. Yes. Yes, you were you were 16, right? Yes, I was 16 years old, and just being as a young child, living in the United States. And by the time I turned 16 stuff, a lot of harassment, a lot of all that stuff was done because I learned the language more and I was getting blamed in with a lot of people. So it was just wrong timing, wrong place with different people. And uh, yeah, I sold the, some marijuana to undercover. It was He was a CI working for for the government. That's how I called my charge. That's how I got into trouble. And uh, it was against the immigration status. So they took away my status. They took away my green card. Did you did you think you were going to be deported at that point? At that point, yes. And at the same time, no. I can say yes was just like you can't, you can't guarantee nothing. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. But uh, I'm saying is no, it was because what was going on in my country. My country was a war, you know what I mean? And I wasn't expecting for people, the government here, to be so harmless to send me up there in the middle of a war zone, Right. you know? So I just had hopes, you know what I mean? And no matter how bad my day was, how dark it would get, but I was hoping for the next day to see the light and to, to continue on. So the upshot of all this is that you have no immigration status for a while. You're not being deported, but you don't have a green card either. And this goes on for several years, right? Yes. This happened in 2006, early 2006. And they never pick up the charges or they never said, oh, you're convinced of felony of selling marijuana. till I turned 18. You know, when I turned 18, all of a sudden, they dropped a warrant against me and uh, they was coming looking for me. So I was out with my friends and my mom called me. She told me like, hey, there is some police over here at the house looking for you. What'd you do? What's wrong? Are you okay? So I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. What's going on? I mean, I didn't do anything, which is to my mind, I haven't done anything. I mean, I didn't get any trouble. I didn't cause any trouble. I'm like, what's going on? Why are they there? So I ended up coming home and facing the police, talking to them like, what's going on? Why are they there? Why are they looking for me? And they was like, oh, you have a dealing charge. I'm like, dealing? I never sold weed to nobody. I mean, nothing's popping in my head. Like, I was so confused. Like, how am I get charged? They was like, yeah, this has been charged when he was 16 years old. By the time I figured out and hire a lawyer and all this stuff, and they was like, find out that it was that time, and and by then it was just uh, it was kind of too late too. At the same time, and I hired a lawyer. I get a. The, my lawyer was like, "You were never gonna face a present time. You were never gonna go. This is your first offense. This is nothing. You never. It's not a big amount. It's just a small amount and stuff like that." So he was keep finessing my family about the money, to pay him. And finally, he, he told me, I had discussions with him that 
he was trying to charge me two thousand, but he took like almost seven thousand from my family because I had I had an incident when I got locked up in the jail and I got in a fight with somebody and they put us in a hole like there's a, a it's called a hole it's in solitary you get in trouble so they put you in there so I couldn't use the phone I couldn't write no letter to my family. I was there for like 30 days, so I couldn't get communicate with my family. The only communication we had was uh, my lawyer was coming to see me. That's the only communication I had with them. Yeah, after that, and uh, they gave me six months. My lawyer was telling me I was never going to face any prison time or anything. And then with the day when it comes for me to go get sentenced, the judge gave me a year to do six months of it in a penitentiary. And after that, when I went to prison, immigration put a hold on me because I wasn't born in here. And uh, I go to immigration, and I did like seven months after my actual prison time, seven or eight months, and I won it. I won my case. Uh, it was against torture. I couldn't go to my country because I would get tortured. So I won my case, and they released me. When they released me, I haven't been out of trouble for since then. Never been in any kind of deal with anything. And so I just uh, been straight up with it. And people were telling me, if you stay out of trouble for five, six years, and the government's not going to, they're going to issue your green card back. So I went to talk to immigration. I have an immigration lawyer uh, to talk to about uh, my status. And she was like, I can get your status back. I can get your green card back, whatever you want. So I gave her whatever she was asking for. The next thing you know, uh, like two weeks later, I get an appointment at the USCIS in Indianapolis that I have to come over there, do fingerprints. They took my pictures and uh, for my green card. And I had my old green card, which was expired in 2015. I tell them, like, hey, this is expired. There is any way you can extend this while I'm getting processed to my new one. It was like, yeah. So they put extension behind it. This was in April 2017. And they extended till February 2018. They was like, by by then you're going to get your new one in the mail and all that. So I was happy. I was like, everything is good now. I mean, I got my status now. Now I can travel. I can go places that I've never seen, you know, just like it's, I was happy, you know, it was like, felt like a free birth, you know? Yeah. So you, this, and this is a, a period that you just described covering 10 years or so where you're just having a lot of difficulties with the immigration system. And in 2017, in your mind, the situation is settled because you have or are about to have a legitimate green card at that point. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, and, and by the way, in, in, in these intervening 10 years or so, that's when you get into poker as well, right? Yes. The, when I first got into in poker was, uh, when I was first locked up in immigration, my first, first time you would do was people was playing and I just got to know the game. It was just like, it looked really, really interesting. You know, it was passing time, killing time with it. It was just like they was going fast, you know, and I kind of got really interested in the game. What did, but what I did never you guys, what did you guys play with? And and were you play with with cigarettes or money or something else? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't no cigarettes. Probably like 
make a cup of Roman noodle soups or whatever okay, <laughs> they okay. used to have it in the commons area. It's just something to be make people interested of playing, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, we used to use Domino's uh, as a chips, you know. We used to use Chuckers as a chips, or sometimes we used to make a Uno card as a chips, mm-hmm. like how much is each card worth. Or we used to write it down on the paper, or just play for the points, you know, what, how much points it's for, what did what, you know. So we was playing. And it was really interesting. I wasn't really thinking about the winning or losing. I was just more thinking about, like, passing time. And once I really got interested in the game, once I got really good at it, like seeing what's, uh, what's what, what straight is, what full house is, what beats what, and stuff like that, it was just like... You, I was getting good at it, you know. I was just being, just becoming better and better, till uh, till I got out. When I did get out, I played a few casinos and stuff like that. I remember my first time I played cash. I bought it for like a hundred bucks, and I cashed out like nine hundred or eight hundred. I, I was playing one two. I was so geeked about it <laughs> that hey, this is this is it. You know, this is it. I can do this all day, all night, and I'm just going to sit here and play print money. So I was so happy. I went home, told my, told my sisters and my girlfriend and everybody, my mom and them. And they was like, no. My mom was more against, like, gambling things and stuff like that. She was always wants you to be sh- straight up, you know, or nothing. No, no mess up in this thing, you know. Everything got to be in straight path. And she kind of got upset about it at the same time as she wasn't, you know, because, I mean, what can she, I mean, she can't stop me from anything I want to do or, or nobody, you know. So she was just happy for me at the same time, too. And then I went to play the next day, I think, or the next day was they close. And then I went there the day after that. Mm-hmm. I went up there to play and I lost the whole 800, 900 that I had. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> And I came home and I was so upset and I was just arguing, randomly arguing with my sisters and stuff like that. So my mom looked at me and told me, she was like, you went up there in that place again, huh? I was like, no, I didn't. I was, she was like, yes, you did. You lost your money. Now you're over here upset and trying to make everybody feel bad about your mistake, you know? So stop making those kind of mistakes in your life if you don't want to be mad. So, so it was just like, uh, it was just like a tap in the shoulder when that happened. So, and then I was getting prepared for those type of things. Like, hey, there is always, there's not always winning. There is, they have bad days and a good day to it. So you just gotta learn how to be balanced between those, you know? That's exactly right, yeah. And then from that time till now, I was playing on and off and I got locked up. Yeah, so let's let's talk about what happened there. (laughs) So, Again, this is we're now in 2017. In yeah. your mind, the immigration status thing is squared away. So you're driving a truck at this time, right? And you drive down from Chicago to Laredo, Texas, near the border. Yeah, I yes, yes, I used to drive a Sprinter, and we used to take like uh, merchandise, like uh, car parts, all over the United States, you know. And uh, I went to Laredo to drop off. I think I. I I was carrying an airplane jet uh, jet engine or something, and uh, I dropped in Laredo. This was on Wednesday or Thursday, 
and I was waiting up there for was waiting there to get a load to get back towards Midwest, and uh, I couldn't find any. So the next day was uh, I think it was Thursday or Friday. So I was like, I'm stuck this weekend, and then I got in contact with some friends that they was in that area. And they was like, hey, let's go to Mexico. Let's go have fun. It's a weekend. Let's go over there for a few hours. We come back and hopefully you get a load and then you can get out of here. First, I was like, you know, all men have this gut feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. I had this bad gut feeling inside of me that, oh, I don't feel like going. I, I've had feelings that something was going to happen to me if I go, you know. Yeah. But I was just like, and I just told them in their face, I was like, no, sorry, bro, I don't want to go. <laughs> I'm about to go in my room, lay down and stuff, and call it a night. He was like, okay. And I have a friend of mine was with me. He was in the room with me, you know, he was, uh, and he was like, uh, well, I'm going to go. <laughs> I was like, okay, you go. And I just laid down on the bed. Next thing you know, they called the taxi. The taxi is waiting outside. And my buddy is ready to go and leave. He's like, come on, bro. Please don't let me go by myself. Come on, come with me. Just like five minutes. So just peer pressure and pretending. I'm like, no. And next thing you know, he's like, okay, let's go. Go over there 10 minutes later. I'm in Mexico. <laughs> you know, I'm in Mexico passing the borders. Once we go to a couple bars, drink some couple shots or some beers. I forgot. I forgot where I was at. <laughs> you know? And we just having fun next thing you know we came back it's around around 3 30 4 o'clock in the morning we get a taxi come back to the united states and uh i give we get to stop at the border that we the checkpoints area we get checked and stuff like that i give you my identification stuff and they tell me to get out of the car they say this is a red flag against yours i want you to come out in the office we can ask you a couple questions and you're on your way back to go anywhere you go I said, All right, cool. I go back inside. As soon as I go inside, they put a handcuffs on me. I'm like, whoa, you just told me you're going to ask me a question. You asked me putting handcuffs on me. He was like, yes, you self-deported yourself to Mexico. Uh, you shouldn't have never left the United States. But uh, if, you wanna, if you want some kind of asylum status or anything, we can provide it to you. And that's that. And you have to go see the judge to, for them to make a decision. So now I'm like, what in the world? What I did myself to, you know? So I was there locked up for five months right by the border area and nobody knew how to speak English, even the guards. And it was like a hard time right there I had to go through. And then they moved me from there to the San Antonio area, which was a little bit better because, I mean, nothing is better if you locked up. It was a little bit because you can communicate with people and there was more people from different countries that you can get blamed in with. And after that, I go see the judge. I fought my case. I hired a lawyer. Lost, 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 lost all my cases. The judge said, you self-reported yourself to, to Mexico. I'm like, I'm not even from there. They were like, we understand, but you should have never left the United States. And now... We're going to deport you to your country. What, what about the green card and all this? When I did, when I mentioned that to the judge and stuff, the green card and stuff, there was like the government made a mistake. 
Even the officer on the border said the government made a mistake. You should never have got your status back because this is not like you're going to get your status. Once you lose it, you're going to lose it. It's not like you're going to, oh, you lost it, now you're going to get it back. Like you lost it, now it's just it's done, you know. Pretty much that's, that's what they said. I mean, I understand it was like I sh- the government should have, like, when I made the appointment, they shouldn't accept my money for my green card. They should have automatically told me, like, hey, you're not eligible for it. Once they accept your money, there is no return for that money because it's, like, almost $800. Mm-hmm. They're not going to give it back to you. So I'm pretty sure it was that's the case. And then the second time, I don't care about the 800 You could have kept the 800 For that 800 I lost two and a half, almost two and a half years of my life. Yeah, I mean, the government, there, you know? the government took your money so that you could have legal status. And then yes. the second you tried to leave the country and come back, which, by the way, is no big deal. If you live in a border town, it happens all the time. They right. say this $800, this whole process that you went through doesn't matter. You have no status mm-hmm. here and you're you're stuck, locked up for years. Yes, there was nothing. There was nothing that I charged with. It wasn't nothing about being charged with. It was just about, uh, I, you went to Mexico. You should have left the country. That's it. It wasn't nothing like when people. Some people when they hear about my story and stuff like that, they'd be like, "Oh, he went to pass the border. Oh, he was a truck driver. Oh, he might be smuggling drugs back and forth." Oh, excuse my language. No wait. You know, like. What is what is the matter? I mean, there is like that's how people assume automatically assumes that you know what I mean? Like, oh, he's a truck driver. He went to Mexico. He this and that. Automatically in their head, it's just like, oh, he was transferring drugs, you know, which is never in my life I put anything in my car to drivers smuggling from anywhere to anywhere. You know what I mean? That's not my kind of thing, you know. Right, and they didn't find After anything. I... I mean, they didn't find anything that you had smuggled. That was never an issue, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you said... Spend... So no, what I'm saying is this was like for people that they don't know me, they mm-hmm. assume automatically can judge you. You know what I mean? It's for those types of people, what I'm saying. Yeah. So you spend, yeah, over over two years locked up in various government facilities. How did you finally, mm-hmm. how did you finally get out? What happened was I lost my case and I was just, by then, when I lost my case, there was like you. The government has six to nine months to keep you. If they don't release you in the six to nine months, if they didn't deport you back to your country in six to nine months, they have to release you. So when I lost my case and I lost appeal, and the government didn't send me nowhere for ten months till I got released. Mm-hmm. What happened when I got released was. I feel like, and when I lost my case and I lost my appeal, I, I lost my hopes too at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I was in San Antonio. And my mind was going everywhere. My mind was going crazy. I was, uh, I was getting in an argument with the, with the officers, with the staff members. It was come to the point of it that I didn't want to, that I have zero if, you know, sure. that I don't care no more. If you're going to send me back, send me back. If you're going to release me, release me. I'm tired of being like that. I'm tired of being dealing with you guys that I don't have to deal with it. So what they did was they locked me up in a, 
isolation. And I was used to be locked up from 17 to 20 hours a day. Yeah, and this was for several months. This was for months at a time, right? You were in solitary confinement. Yeah, this six to eight months. Mm. And uh, and they told me, the officers told me, and their whatever, the sergeants, lieutenant, whatever, they were like, you're not going to get out of this hole until either you get deported or the government tell us to release you. And those things, just like I was just going, my mind was going crazy, and I couldn't do nothing. And I had a few reporters that uh, I got in contact with. And uh, the reason I made an interview with the reporters because we were getting treated really wrong in immigration facilities. Because I, I, I wasn't trying to get any fan out of that. I wasn't getting no money out of that. None of that stuff. The reason I did that, if in the future, a person just like myself have to go through all that stuff, so they don't have to go through that stuff, you know? I want the stuff to be changed for them people, you know what I mean? Because the way they're treating, the way they're going through all this stuff, is just terrifying, you know? Right. And what you're talking about is there's, there's, for example, a YouTube video of you talking about your experience from inside of a government facility while you're still locked up, right? Yeah. Right. I was I was still in isolation when I was talking to the reporters. And there was reporters was recording it, and they made a documentary about me. Right. Pausing this interview here because this is a spot where I felt like I should have asked a follow up question, uh, which is why did you get put in solitary confinement? I'm not a fan of the practice of solitary confinement, especially if the reason you're in detention is not really justified in the first place. But I did talk to Ilias a few days after this interview to ask him what happened. He did say that he uh, at one point got in a fight with another inmate and that there was an incident also where uh, he was using a shower or wanted to use a shower at a time uh, when a guard thought that he shouldn't. So he was put into solitary confinement for those reasons. Yeah. So, so when you finally get out, it, if I understand it correctly, it's that somebody contacted the Afghan embassy and they said, yeah, he doesn't live here or something like that, right? Yeah, I will go to that in a second. What happened was like when I was in San Antonio, I was talking to my to the officers of immigration officers. Hey, I want to talk to my embassy. You know, I want to tell them what's going on. Are they going to accept me or they? Because this was. This was when, when I lost my case. This was in between 10 months that I was waiting on, you know. I was like, I need to talk to my embassy. I want to know what's going on, what they want to do. And, okay, we will make it happen for you. Never get contact with my embassy. So they moved me after after the isolation when I was locked up in ISIS. They moved me from there, from San Antonio. They moved me to Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. I was in Dallas, Texas, which was a lot I mean, being locked up is nothing better, but from getting out of the hole and going somewhere that uh, that is a little freedom, and you can see your uh, they have tablets. I could see my kids. I was FaceTiming my kids, and I have the food like it was a little bit better and stuff like that. And so finally, I got a little. I hopes in me, you know, like I see my kids now. I FaceTime them, seeing my kids, hopefully, and I just like relived again, you know, like like all this stuff that I was locked up for six, seven months in a hole. Now 
things are making me feel forget about what what was going on. And so after that, they they still keep pressuring me like to have to sign this paper. And this paper was like pretty much to people voluntarily deport themselves to their back born countries. Like they was making me sign this paper, give all my rights to these people, tell them like, go ahead, yeah, send me out of here. I don't want to live in here no more, which was absolutely wrong, you know what I mean? Because I do want to live here. It's my kids. I, I have, I don't know nothing better than the state, you know, even in the countries that I lived and I was born, I don't have nothing in there than in here. Didn't, nobody was willing for me to talk to my embassy. Even though when they moved me from San Antonio to Dallas, they never wanted me to talk to my embassy. They was like, oh, you signed this paper, make up fake names, fake background, whatever. That's what my immigration officer told me one time. They was like, make up fake names and stuff like that, just sign it. And uh, and we're going to send it to your embassy. If your embassy didn't accept it, we're going to let you go tomorrow. And I spoke to my lawyer. My lawyer was like, you have two choices. Either you sign it and let them do what they want to do. And if you get lucky, they're going to let you release you. Or if you don't do it, they can they can actually charge you for that, for not cooperating with, with them. They can get you up to four years in prison. And then once you get out, they're going to bring you back in the facility and they're going to make you do the same thing over again. You know what I mean? Which is like, this is torturing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people, a lot of people doesn't know about the system that's going on right now, you know? It's a torturing system. So, so I was like, okay, I have to cooperate with them. It's time to, I mean, I'm gonna do it, whatever. So one morning they came in and got me, they tried to make me sign, but I didn't sign it. I was like, hold on, I, need to, I still need to speak to my lawyer, because I have still like, t- something was telling me like, don't do that, just wait. Don't do it. See what happened. So the day the day asked me, and it's been like three months now. I've been living in Dallas facility since they moved me from uh, San Antonio. Now I'm in Dallas facility for three months, three and a half months, and nothing is going up. Uh, they moved me. They moved me from there to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. When they moved me to Oklahoma, it's just like the facility is terrible. Men sleeping right next to each other. The, the beds are connected right next to each other. People are sleeping right next to each other. My sleep schedule was disappeared. <laughs> you know, because like there's like you have neighbors. You know, your neighbors. Some if you, if my neighbor was sleeping during daytime, I have to sleep at nighttime because I don't want to sleep next to another man. <laughs> and if he's sleeping at nighttime, I don't want to sleep right next to him. So I have to cooperate myself, play, go do some push-up, workout, read some books or something to try and make myself busy. And then when this person is wake up and I go to sleep, so I don't have to, because it was just me. I, I, there was more uh, people that they was locked up, they didn't care about those type of things. For me, I, I was scared about it. You know, I, I didn't want to, I don't want to sleep next to <laughs> man. You know, I'm a grown person, you know. It's not, so leave those things behind. And... So I met this, uh, and I had signed in immigration officer for my for my case. So when I spoke to this guy, he just looked at me. He was like, "You don't look like you're from any of these countries. Where are you from?" Because the way I was speaking to him and my English and stuff. So he was like, "Where are you from?" 
So I told him where I was from, where I was born and stuff, and I've been locked up for this and that. He was like, wow, you went through some stuff. I was like, yeah. I mean, I've been trying to get hold of my embassy and stuff, and I want to see what's, what's the final answer. Either I'm going to go home or whichever. I need to go. I need to be somewhere free instead of being locked up. He was like, okay, I'll make an appointment to your, to your embassy. I'll make sure I have them talk to you as a FaceTime, like we FaceTime each other, and we go from there. I was like, all right, cool. And I talk, uh, I called like a week later. They made an appointment with the, uh, with the embassy. I talked to them. There was a headquarters of uh, immigration officers in there, and there was two Afghan uh, officers there. I spoke to them, and they was like, they laughed at me. They was like, where were you this whole time? Why didn't you call us? I'm like, I've been trying to get hold of you guys for this this many months, you know? I never I never could have got hold of you guys. This is my status. And I was born there, but I have no kind of contact with nobody, no family members there, anything. What can you guys help me with? They just, they just told the officer that we will get back with them. And what happened was the paper that I mentioned earlier, remember? I said I spoke to my lawyer. They want me to sign the paper. If I if you don't cooperate, they will give you four years extra time. Mm-hmm. When I was in Dallas, the officer, immigration officer, faked the paper, write a fake name, made a fake signature about me, and put a fake fingerprint and sent it to my embassy. Said yeah, he's ready to go. So when I was talking to my embassy people, they was like, didn't you send this to us? This is you, right? So I had a folder with me, and I kept all those papers that they give me. I was like, no, sir. Look, I have three more copies of those, and I never fill up those. That's why they got mad. They transferred me from there to here. You know, I never applied that. So they looked at each other like, what is going on with this kid? Why is he getting treated like this, you know? So... And then they tell the officer, like, okay, we will get back with you guys in a week or two, and we will make our decisions. Sorry, I, 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 I want to make sure I understand what's happened here. So so the U.S. government, you're saying that the U.S. government, like, filed fake papers that prevented the Afghan embassy from it, it, identifying you? Yes, that was the immigration. I mean, I mean that was the immigration officers in, in Dallas, where I was at. So they faked the paper, they applied it as my behalf. They said, okay, he, he, this is, they wrote, they make up those fake things and they said, I did it. You get it? Mm, wow. Okay. So when I did talk to the Afghan embassy, they, they have the paper and showing it to me in my face, as a FaceTime, like here, this is you, you did this stuff. I'm like, I never applied for that paper. I never put an ink in that paper, wrote on it. And it's not you. So they was like, no, it's not me. Wow. Okay. So they was like, okay, we will get back with you for that. Yeah, it was it was terrible. So, and then when I, I'm still like, what do you mean you're going to get up? When the government, the uh, Afghan embassy is telling this guy that we will get back with him, so I'm getting upset, like, what do you mean you're going to get back with me? I've been locked up for over two years now. I've been waiting for this interview. I need you guys to make a decision now type of stuff, you know, like what's going to happen. 
And next thing you know, the officer tapped me on the shoulder and said, okay, get off the phone with Ben and I'll talk to you in a second. Get off the phone. He was like, I have a good news for you. You're not going to go back to Afghanistan. The way they're telling me, that the way, the way they were speaking, you're, they're not going to send you back to Afghanistan. What they're going to do is, either they're going to release you here in the United States, or they're going to find a third country for you, see if they will accept you, and then you might, you might go to that country. So I'm like, all right, cool. And so I speak to the guy. I've been, he was like, just wait for a couple more days. If they don't get back with me, I'm gonna write in the email. If they don't respond to my email, I'm gonna call them. And then if they don't answer that, then I'm gonna get back to my boss, or my headquarters, and I'm gonna explain the situation with him, see if, if he can release you. So I was like, all right, cool. I have somebody like actually cares. Mm-hmm. Like a week later, not even a week later, this was a Monday that I was waiting the whole week. I was waiting for that Monday for the officer to come so I can get the good news out of him. He came early morning to pick up the mail. I ran up to him like, hey bro, what's up? You got some news for me? You know, like like one of those addicts, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you got something for me? <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> Like, this guy's laughing, like, hey, I just got here. Hold on. Let me go check my email and stuff like that, and I'll get back with you. And he was, and he told me, too, at the same time. He was like, I checked my email. I didn't see anything under your name. So I was disappointed. I was like, man, I've been waiting for this whole weekend for this guy. And he said no. I was upset. I go lay down. About not even 30 minutes later, somebody knocked on my window. He was like, hey, the officer want to talk to you. When he said that, I knew automatically that my gut was telling me, hey, you got a good news, buddy. Be ready for it. Because that guy's gonna, you're gonna go home. You're gonna get released. I still didn't believe, go over there and speak to the guy. He was like, hey, I got a news for me. I just got some papers from there. And just, boom, he gave me my release paper. He was like, you ready to go? Do you have anybody to come pick you up? Bro, that was the most happiest time ever. In my life, I can't even imagine. Like a lot of people be, yeah, a lot of people be saying it's the only two days you're gonna remember when you locked up or something. The day you go in and the day you get out. Mm-hmm. But the day when I got out, I will never forget about that feeling and how exciting, how, how much I was spoke, I was speechless. Yeah, you know. And that this was in October and, 2019. That that's not very long ago. That's less than 18 months ago. Yes. Yes. And when I came home after that, I was just went to my, I mean, it was just unreal, you know, and I was just taking it easy, trying to, trying to find a job and stuff like that. And I still couldn't get any kind of job. And I was playing poker here and there, but at the same time, I wasn't like, I didn't have money to play, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was just like, like a loose bird, you know, like they didn't know where to go. I mean, I had a, I had my family and stuff, but I, I didn't know where to go in life. Right. You know, like everything was any door I was trying to open, it was closing on my face, you know, before. So, and then boom, this pandemic thing happened. <laughs> and 
So definitely, you know, everything closed, you know, all the casinos are closed. I can't play, you know, no game. I can't play no poker that to make some money off of it. I was just lost. Cause I got this on these poker apps that people introduced me with like during pandemic and nobody was playing. So a lot of people was playing online or playing on the apps. So I get in the, I got involved in uh, playing poker here and there, tournaments and stuff. And I was just sitting, not doing anything until I just started uh, going to mm, looking for tournaments, seeing if any tournaments coming up anywhere soon or anything. And I see in the Hard Rock Hollywood in Florida. So when I see that, I was like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go play this tournament. And I want to go play a few because they have like the whole so many tournaments. And I went there for like my bankroll was like not even 6,000 when I went up there. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't prepared to play the main event or anything. Yeah, you, else. you were just there to play some of the side events, right? Yes, yes. So. When I go over there and play some side events and stuff, and I cashed on one of them, and that was that. And I was, like, really disappointed. And I was like, oh, well, it didn't happen. It's like, a, like another try, you know? Mm-hmm. You try, it didn't go. You got to go on, keep moving. So I go. I had my flight coming up. Go to my flight. Go to past the security, everything, and then my flight got delayed for 30 minutes. I didn't know this go, part. You, you actually went to the airport. You were at the airport. I went to the airport. Yeah, Charlie. <laughs> I went to the airport. I passed the security. First of all, it's like the funny part about this. Listen to this. My flight was supposed to be in uh, from Miami International Airport, but I was in Fort Lauderdale, so when I called the uh, Uber, so I, I told them, like, take me to an airport. I didn't tell them to take me to Miami or oh, I told no. them to just take me to airport. So this guy's taking me to, this guy just took me to Fort Lauderdale air, right. Airport. So I go over there, I go over there, I'm punching, trying to print my ticket, and it says, wrong, wrong. And there's two couples up there have the same mistake as I did, come to the wrong airport. <laughs> we look at each other, she was like, hey, we're in the wrong airport. He was like, yes, we are. We all run down outside, get a cab, trying to take us to Miami Airport. That's like 45 minutes. Yeah, it's not it's not close at all, right? It's yeah, almost an hour, yeah. right? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. So, so you're so, you're uh, taking a ride with these other people who've made the same mistake from Fort Lauderdale down to Miami, and you end up missing your flight. No, I didn't miss my flight. So we get the taxi driver. Taxi is just taking sweet time, whatever. I'm like, bro, I know you were trying to run the, the, the meter. We can give you extra money, but take us there. We don't want to miss our flight, you know? So finally, we got to our flight. I passed I pass the security checkpoints, all that stuff. I go sit down. I'm on time for my flight. Everything is on time, you know? Even though I was supposed to miss this flight, but I'm on time right now. I, I still got like a half hour, you know, I'm sitting down and then all of a sudden I get a text message on my phone and then the guy, the announcer, just announced that uh, the flight's going to be half hour late from Fort Lauderdale to Indianapolis. So 
I get the text too. They was like, your flight's going to be at 8.30. So it's like 7.45 right now. So I got up. I got up. I find a little, you know, those little restaurants that they have. Mm-hmm. and grabbed me some food. I started eating there. And it's about 8.15 now that I start heading towards uh, the area to go take my flight. When I go there, it's nothing in there. It's like everything looks like weird, you know. The, the, the monitor there was on. It's off now. Everything looks like doesn't look the same. And and it's 8.35 now. I'm like, what's going on? So I call the airline. It says, your flight is departure. They're in the air right now. They will get there on time. I'm like, whoa. I missed the flight. So I'm like, how did I miss it? I just right in my face. I'm right here. How did I miss this flight? So I'm like feeling like all heartbroken, like what? Now I have to wait here another day. I don't want to be here no more. I just want to go home. So I go back to Hard Rock. I get a room. I was like, I'm going to go play another tournament tomorrow. Yeah. Hopefully if I can win this one. And it was the $2,200 tournament. Because the night before that, I played some cash and I played some slots. I won like three, dollars $4,000. So I was like, okay, the trip is paid off. I'm not worrying. I'm going to play the 2200 that they got going on since I cannot play the main event. That was at 11 o'clock. So I didn't go sleep till like 4 o'clock in the morning that day. So I go sleep. I'm like, I'm going to wake up at 11 o'clock, go downstairs, play the, the tournament, or hopefully everything go well. I didn't wake up till like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, all right, whatever. They had a 5 o'clock, they had a tournament. Satellite tournaments. So, so you you missed the twenty two hundred, is what you're saying? Yeah, I missed the twenty two hundred. Okay, and so the, yeah. and the next thing up is this is the satellite for the main event. Yes, it's the satellite for the main event. So, the satellite is going to be like five or six o'clock. But I woke up like four four thirty ish. So I'm like, oh, I'm really disappointed now. I'm like, all right, let's go try the satellite. If I get a seat, I'm going to cancel my flight and I'm going to stay. I'm going to play the satellite. So next thing you know, I go downstairs, play the satellite. I get a seat. I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, oh, this thing is easy. Yeah, so, so, I get a so seat you get like, and, it's a $400 satellite, right, into like a $3,500 main event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is Thursday. And then the main event is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I call my flight again, cancel my flight. So I go and it's like... Uh, I'm playing for day one, the Friday, and I got double up. My stack is growing. And we're about to go to dinner break, and I had like 170, 180, or 100, almost 200,000 chips in front of me. I'm pretty sure I'm going to back for sure. I'm going to back tonight. And the day two is the same thing, you know, when I play because I didn't play Saturday and I played Sunday. And my day two is just like my chips are growing. Like, I know I'm playing for so many hours and everything that I'm doing is going in my way. Every time my bluff is going the right way, my, my mid hands pay me off. And it's just like, it's just like going, everything is going the right way. I'm like, 
what's going on? Is this is this my tournament? It just tell it just I'm, I'm, I'm just asking myself, you know what I mean? Like, have you been in this type of situation that you have to ask yourself like, what am I doing here, or how is this thing working this way or not? Uh, not so not for the I'm amount doing. of money that you're you're talking about. Not not in an, in an event this big, but yeah, I know the feeling for sure. <laughs> yeah, so it's day two, and I'm just like. Everything is going right. So I called my family and stuff like, hey, I think I'm going to win this tournament. Because <laughs> everything is working so well, you know. And I get it on day two. I had to cancel my ticket on day two. And after that, I didn't book the ticket. After that, I canceled them on day two. I was like, I will make a, I will call you guys when I want to make a, a reservation for the flight. And my day two turned to day three, day three turned to day four, four turned to final table, and the next thing you know, it was with the tournament, I won the tournament, you know? Yeah. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, it's a huge tournament, probably going to be one yeah. of the biggest of the year, or, well, the biggest of the, the first six months of the year, at least, as we still deal with this pandemic, yeah. but you, you end up with, mm -hmm. with something like $620,000, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, that's that's just incredible. I don't know what to ask, but that's just that's just wild. You end up uh, doing a three-way chop, and then you you guys continue playing, and you beat the other two players, and end up winning mm -hmm. uh, WPT. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eight, Eighteen just, months after was... you were in you were in federal detention. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I got blessed big time. You know, even though. Like people go through a lot, like they have darks and lights and stuff in life. But even though there's darkness that I've been through, that I always seen a really, really small light in those darkness, you know? I was mm -hmm. always seeing light in there. So anything in life, what I'm saying is like put you into, a lot of people like to give up in life, you know? I mean, like this is, this is for everybody, you know? Like, Certain things like you cannot give up in life. Certain things you cannot control over. It, you know, yeah. like I know it, you know it, and everybody knows it. That the only way you can get up, no matter how hard you fell, this is what it says is how fast you're gonna get up. You know, people fall fell down every day. People lose their bankrolls. People people go through. People get locked up through all the stuff every day, every second. The best thing it is, how are you going to get out of that situation? How are you going to get blessed with it? How are you going to do the right things after when, what you've been through, you know? So right now, I guess I've been through a lot. I, do, I know I went through a lot, and I know how to get up at, from that darkness too, you know? Mm -hmm. I went and got myself. If I would have been sitting down at home and just trying to play online and trying to be comfortable, not do nothing. I still would have. Nobody would have known me. Nobody would have not know who Elias Mari is. But I did what I had to do to go follow up my dream. You know, I always wanted to win a WPT champion. You know, because there is no episode that you can think of that I didn't watch. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. So, so what's next for you? I mean, what what do you do now? You you keep following the circuit, or what do you what do you do to to make sure that you hold on to this money and hopefully keep things moving on on an upward path. 
I'm uh, I'm gonna open up a couple of businesses. I have a few businesses in mind, mm-hmm. and I have some uh, merchandise coming out. Gonna come up soon, hopefully this summer, uh, like uh, shirts, hoodie, hat, like poker and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm working on writing a book. You're an autobiography or something else? Yes, 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 yes. About myself, yes. Well, I really look forward to reading that. When you win a large tournament, not to take anything away from what you did, I mean, there's just a lot of luck involved, and I I don't generally think of tournament winners as having deserved it or not. But I mean, mm-hmm. becoming familiar with your story. You, you deserve it, and I'm I'm so happy this happened for you. I appreciate it, my man. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is incredible. Thanks so much for sharing your story, and uh, good luck to you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. It was nice talking to you, and pleasure is mine. Thanks so much to Ilias for bravely taking the time to talk to me. In many ways, this is an ongoing story, because... Ilias still only has a work permit, which he describes as being one step below a green card. It allows him to work in the U.S. and to have a U.S. driver's license, but it expires each year and has to be renewed and has a very long renewal process that makes other things like going to the DMV very difficult. It also continues to make it impossible for him to travel outside the country. Ilias would still like to get a green card or perhaps citizenship at some point, and he emphasized that this is all still happening to him because of one mistake that he made when he was 16 years old. He's in his early 30s now, so this has been going on for the better part of two decades. His family all lives here. He thinks of himself as living in the United States and the United States as his country. But the process of having that be recognized legally continues for him. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.